Welcome to the Coltis King Podcast. I'm your host, Rambling Bones, joined as ever by my co-host, the Duke. Greetings. And Duke, what is it we do here on our little podcast? Well, we uh, dive into the world of cult movies. We look for those movies that you may not have seen that have gathered cult followings over the years, or some of which have just been unknown, and we dig them up for you and tell you about them. Precisely, and the cult movie of choice this time around was the movie Rollerball, the the original one from the 70s, not that, not the 2000s one. We aren't going to talk about that one. Ever. Ever. Well, I wouldn't say ever. <laughs> and since it is All Request November, this was requested by Tim. So shout out to you. Thank you for your patronage to our comment section. <laughs> yes, please never leave us. <laughs> so... A little bit about the plot of Rollerball. Rollerball follows Jonathan. Jonathan plays a little sport you might have guessed called Rollerball. Now, this this movie takes place off in the future. The future of 2018. The future of 2018. And, well, in the future, everything is ran by corporations. Now, they seem to have solved all of our problems... But the thing is, is they solved our problems by taking complete control of your life. So you have zero freedom and zero agency. They they tell you what to do. They tell you who your girlfriend is. And they give you pills. And they give you pills. Lots and lots of pills. So Jonathan, he plays the sport of rollerball. And what's special about him is he is a star rollerball player. And, and rollerball players, they sort of... uh. They don't really last. They they have a tendency to become terribly injured or dead because it is a, a rather violent sport. But and not Jonathan E. No, he's, he's I think, the last seven years, I believe they said. I think ten. Tap, hey, might have even been ten. It doesn't matter. He's lasted a while, and the corporations, or at least the corporate executives, have decided that they no longer want him playing rollerball. They'd like him to retire. And Jonathan does not want to retire. This is this is the plot. This is the story. Now, I guess we should talk first off about the sport, rollerball. Right. So rollerball, which was a sport, uh, I guess it was invented in the short story that this, uh, this was adapted from. And it was actually adapted by the guy who wrote it, William Harrison. I think the short story is just called The, the Rollerball Murderer. Yes, but uh, the whole thing is this is played like in this big circular track, and it's like a mixture of like football and roller derby, but turn up the violence to 11 and throw in some motorcycles. Yeah, they they play in what almost looks like a big walk, like the the walls of the circular arena are inclined towards the center, and in the center is where the teams, like their coaches, this is like the dugout in the center. And I don't know if this was intentional, but while watching the movie, I was like, oh, this is great design. Because when somebody like gets hit or hurt, they just roll down the <laughs> sides of the uh, the ring down to where the, the medical attention is. Well, that and where they can be subbed out for a new player. Yeah, and their ball of choice is this big, heavy metal sphere i guess it's like slightly bigger it's like a softball right made of metal 
And it's shot out initially through this gutter system, kind of like a pinball. Yeah. And uh, you have to get it and get it. I don't know if there are two, like, holes that you're supposed to get it, like one for each team, or if there's one hole and it just depends on which team has the ball, whether that hole is, you know, to be guarded by whom. But yeah, basically one member of the team has to get the uh, ball into that slot. And the whole time, the other team is trying to prevent this from happening. And a few, everybody's on skates and a few people, I think there's like one or two motorbikes on each team. It's like a game of hockey where everybody is playing goon. Yes, everybody is playing goon. They even have spiked gauntlets for uh, extra hitting power. This movie is two things. It's one part dystopian film and then one part sport film. And despite not entirely knowing the rules of Rollerball, like there are three games throughout the, the movie. And the first game, they have like some commentators sort of explaining what the rules are through their commentary. And so you sort of pick up what the game is, but despite not fully knowing what the rules are, it's very entertaining. Right. Well, and I think they do a good job of it's pretty intuitive, so they don't spend all this time dumping information at you. But no, the sport was actually the stuntmen who worked on this, which, by the way, this was one of the, uh, I think, believe this was the first Hollywood movie to actually credit its stuntmen because they were so vital to the film. There are a lot of stunts there in this are. movie. Uh, this movie's mostly stunts in certain places. Yeah. But um, uh, the stuntmen would actually play rollerball in between uh, when the mo- shots were being filmed. They would actually play it in their downtime. Um, some studio execs or uh, some people actually wanted to buy the rights to the sport. Yeah. Uh, and they called up the director who was absolutely furious with them because, uh, as we'll talk about later, they definitely missed the point of the movie. Yeah. Norman uh Jusen, I believe is how you pronounce the name. He, I I don't know if this was his only intention behind the movie, but part part of the movie was supposed to draw attention towards uh, the brutality of contact sports, which you know I I sort of see in this film. But unfortunately, though, for his message is rollerball. Well, fortunately for the movie, maybe unfortunate for the message is that rollerball is the most awesome thing ever. Honestly. And, I mean, looking at it, I'm th- thinking, you know, if you maybe removed the spiked gauntlets uh, and told people that not everyone could play goon, <laughs> if if uh, maybe you, you made a few more rules, rollerball is a very achievable sport. And so achievable, in fact, that back when I was in high school, I remember finding a PDF that was essentially like the rollerball bible it had everything you needed to know about making the arena which it's good to know that bones was getting a good education yeah. <laughs> spending his time looking up ways to play rollerball <laughs> yeah i yeah, had the rules and everything so i if you want to start your own backyard rollerball arena i'm not the resources we'll, are out there and we're not saying we'll sponsor a rollerball team but you should at least run it by us you should at least contact us we got like 10 bucks we could give you. <laughs> I mentioned that there were three games of rollerball in this movie. And part of 
what works is each uh, game sort of uh, is a clear escalation. Right. Like, the movie opens up with the match uh, between the Houston Energy, which is, they're owned by the Energy Corporation, and that's the team that Jonathan plays for. Yeah. And uh, they're having a match against Madrid. And you can see that it's already, I mean, it's a brutal game. People are constantly being injured and subbed out. But it's a normal game. Like, this is just what rollerball is supposed to be. Now, when the second game comes, the stakes have been raised because now they're playing a no penalty game. Now, the game was already incredibly dangerous and people already died in it all the time. But now there are absolutely no penalties and there's limited substitutions. Yeah, the the idea is that the corporate execs, um, and the main corporate exec is a guy named Bartholomew, played by uh, John Houseman. And he does a fantastic job. Yeah. You know, their their thing is, is like, Jonathan is a star and he he's a household name and they can't just kill him. They can't just kick him out and force him to retire. So what they do is they start playing with the rules of the game because right. rollerball, it, they're just going to let the game take its course. And so the, the game that they play against Japan is no penalty and limited substitution. And then the final game is no timelet, no penalty, and no substitution. So it's just... Literally, in the Japan game, it just devolves into people killing each other. And part of the reason they're doing this is rollerball is a sport that's not supposed to have a champion. The whole idea is all these corporations have kind of created rollerball not only as kind of a way for the you know masses to, I guess, get out some of their bloodlust, but it's supposed to show the futility of individual effort. Yeah. Uh, everything has to be done as a team. I mean, you can't even go very far with the ball, this heavy steel thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a thing where players are pretty expendable. Because one uh, criticism I'd like to address is most people are like, why would they think that? All sports, people tend to focus around a guy, you know? But in rollerball, nobody lasts very long. <laughs> yeah, th- this is, you know, Tom Brady might be the star player for a season until he gets brutally murdered by the Japanese. Right, until his motorbike explodes after some guy drop kicks it. Yeah. But um uh Jonathan though has been doing this for 10 years and he is the champion of rollerball. So initially they just want to get him to retire and they first, you know, kind of give him a little bit of a nudge like, "Hey, we want you to retire. We're making this big special for you." And he doesn't. And I think the Tokyo game initially was put there to get him so that he would be like, oh, I don't want to be a part of that. Well, he wasn't even – well, the the reason it was – they changed the rules was to help get him to retire prior to even going to the Tokyo game. Right. But during the Tokyo game, Jonathan's uh, friend Moon Pie is a new up-and-coming player, uh, and he's played by John Beck. And we'll talk more about him when we get to cast a crew. And he is the gooniest goon. He, on the team. he His whole strategy is basically like he will wait up on the edge of the ring and the rail and wait for people to come through and just go into him, uh, including people on motorcycles. Yeah, he is like the second best part of this movie. Which, honestly, I wish he was in it longer, but the parts he are, is in are uh, significant. Which makes the impact of the Tokyo game extra impactful because... The Japanese players literally, just three of them grab him, take his helmet off, and then just 
punch him in the back of the head, I mean, with their spiked gauntlets, which puts him in a vegetative state. And the thing is, too, is it's like, they're not really bad guys in the traditional sense, because yes, they just straight up kill Moonpie and it's traumatic. But you know, Moonpie, like, killed a guy or two, I think even probably that game. Yeah, like, he, he at least sent somebody to the hospital. And uh, in his career, probably uh, many people. But that's, like, when things really escalate. And then by the final game... The, the final game, like, it starts off as a normal game, but by the second half, it just turns into a riot. They're just beating each other. No, it's pretty much at the end of the movie... There's nobody left but Jonathan and two other players, and he dispatches one of them, and then the other guy comes at him, and he's got, like, the ball in his hand over the dude, and he's about to kill him before he's just like, you know, what's the point? Yeah. Uh, if anything, though, I mean, and it's a really cool scene. Yeah. Um, I'll say this for the movie. I know the critics didn't like it. Some people thought it was pretentious. Other people thought it was stupid. But I was thinking, <laughs> that's just how it was, right? Well, I, but I, I understand, uh, but it's like, it's 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 not both, both ends of the spectrum. Right, it was really getting it from both ends from critics. But I, I really was thinking about, like, this scene and just the movie in general, like, the day after I watched it. It was still fresh in my mind. But, uh, like, the crowd is, like, just stunned and it's silent. And he goes up and he puts the ball in and I don't even think the scoreboard even goes off. For me, I would say this movie does have a happy ending, or at least what I'd call a, a happy ending. It feels like every dystopian film, like 1984, or... I mean, just the stories in general. Just the, the these, story yeah. type, they always end in some sort of like nihilistic... The, the system just always wins out, but, you know, he, he get puts the ball in the hole... Houston wins, and he does a victory lap around the ring while everyone chants his name, and the movie just ends. Well, it sort of. You also see Mr. Bartholomew, when he starts seeing this, hastily makes himself towards the exit, and you see it just ends up with, like, a close-up on Jonathan's face, like he's going to get him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, uh... But it, but it's, it's like, it ends with a victory lap, essentially. It and it's, it's, well, and that's I mean, more than what I thought I was going to get. Um, with a movie like this. No, if anything, like, their plans have failed in the worst way possible. Now, the one guy that they were hoping to finally kill to remove from being the champion is the last man standing and is the last thing the crowd is seeing at the end of this game. The way they set it up at the end, because the last two dudes on the opposite team, there's one, you know, normal guy, and then there's a guy with a motorcycle. So they really set it up that, oh, this is not going to end well. Uh, however, they were not smart enough to both attack him at the same time. <laughs> Though it might not have made a difference. Uh, Jonathan's built different. Also, th this has to do with both the ending and the beginning. Oh, I I've forgotten the name. It, it, it opens and ends with uh, a box song, a very famous one. Do you remember which? Uh, yes, uh, it's uh, Tokata and Fugue in uh, minor D. Yeah, I believe is what it's called. It's very it's you would the, recognize it. Banana, da -na -na -na. It's that one. Right. And I don't know if this was intentional, but in my head I was thinking, I wonder if the reason they have this creepy sinister organ music 
is because of hockey games and like baseball games having organ music. You know, that might that might be part of it. That being said, too, just in general, this movie uses a lot of classical music for its score. Yeah, it doesn't have a... There's a little bit of original music, but most of it is pre-written classical stuff. Which I guess maybe might have been why some of the people said pretentious, but honestly, I think it did a very good job of, like, setting the mood for a lot of it. Yeah, and unlike many uh, independent films that use public domain (laughs) classical music... Uh, the music actually fits with everything going on in the movie. Right. No, it actually, well, I mean, it works like a score would, right? It, yeah. Uh, it conveys the tone of the movie quite well. But uh, yeah, no, I love that it opens and closes with that. Mm-hmm. Well, and th- that would make sense too if that, if the, maybe the organs at those games are kind of what inspired some of it because they also have, I mean, they play on a lot of stuff with the sports, like uh Instead of everybody rising for the national anthem, uh, they rise for the corporate anthem. Yes. And, it, you know, everybody's, like, standing up solemnly, except that you can see all the players are, like, sizing each other up. Like, Moon Pie's, like, looking over at the other guy. Yeah. Trying to psych him out. Honestly, this movie reminded me a lot of Slapshot, which is a completely... I mean, it's about hockey, and it's a, a very funny film, but maybe due to the fact that in Slapshot, everyone's playing Goon. <laughs> and even, like, at the end of Slapshot, you know, where the characters is doing, like, a victory lap around the ring. Just completely different tones, but I think the sport essence of both. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, we should probably explain that term for anybody who doesn't watch hockey or sports in general the term goon oh yeah (laughs) that's basically the guy whose job and you see uh, this is almost a position in hockey like you know is he's the guy who immediately gets in fights or hurts the other guy and goes to the penalty box yeah Uh, you know (laughs) he's the uh the one with the uh record amount of time spent in penalty box right team and uh yeah like i said well and they the penalty box, they like, it was funny because they're like, you know, they're even describing, there's a point where uh, Jonathan's talking to some new recruits and he's like explaining like strategies and stuff they need to do. And uh, at one point he's like, you know, yeah, you know, if you're playing motorcycle, you know, if a little guy, if a guy's like, you know, skating too good, you know, you might run him down, take three, take, it might be worth the three minute penalty. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's important to remember too, that uh, as much as Jonathan is a likable guy, uh, He's, they're all, every character in here who plays rollerball is guilty of brutalizing and killing the other players. And though you root for like the team, you know, cause they're your guys and that's the team Jonathan's on, uh, everybody's brutalizing everybody. It's not like the other team is the evil heel team playing dirty. It's just like, that's the game. Yeah. The, everyone is definitely a product of the current time of the film. Right. Now, what's interesting, though, well, I guess one more thing I want to say before we move on from talking about, like, the sport rollerball. Mm-hmm. One thing I think that's very interesting choice that I thought really helped the movie is when rollerball is filming rollerball, um, it's not filmed like a, I don't know, I could easily see this if it were made today being like a series of, like, cinematic shots here and there. But this is filmed more like you're actually just watching the game. When you're watching rollerball, you you feel like you're just spectating the sport on TV like you would a game of football or basketball. It's very interesting the way they did that. You're watching the sport 
and it it's very well done. And I also really appreciate that there were no psychedelic moments. This one's sort of like a weird thing to be thankful for, but not if you like to watch 70s sci-fi. When you're yeah, 70s sci-fi, like I love Logan's Run, but there's a few moments where I, I it's like mm, that's an interesting choice that doesn't really help. But I there's one scene where they're contrasting between two different things, and this isn't during when they're actually playing the sport. It's completely outside of that. And it's a little on the psychedelic side, just, or at least a little on the stranger side. So I was a little worried that, you know. You were about to take a weird 70s psychedelic turn. Yeah. No, it, it, it pretty much films it straight. Yes. What's interesting, though, is that the scenes of rollerball that aren't the sport, uh, it's almost like there's a bit of kind of a mystery going on. Jonathan E. does not know why the execs want him out. But he's also a man who has, like, nothing going for him but rollerball, even though he's, like, and he's well taken care of. He's got, like, a ranch. He's got, they constantly send him women and pills and stuff like that. But I guess one of the corporate execs at one point just decided that they wanted his wife. And and they took her. And she, so he's kind of got a chip on his shoulder. And he's not, like, a very smart man, necessarily. Like, he's smart enough to know that there's something weird going on, but, like, James Conn does a real good job of playing him as just kind of a... Sort of like a normal person. Just kind of like a normal... It kind of maybe has a bit of, like, a country boy, like, just simple blue-collar stiff kind of a vibe to him. Yeah. And I guess this sort of plays into the dystopian aspect. Uh, I'll say for this movie, and I, I think that this was something the critics had a problem with, is that since it's both... A dystopian film and a sport film it doesn't hit all of the marks for both now for the sport film that's fine like it it's it's fine that it didn't hit those typical story beats but for the dystopian part there's some stuff that isn't exactly super fleshed out and yeah, a lot of it's the world building is uh vague to say the least and for me, I didn't necessarily mind that deeply. Like, the main problem is that there are no individuals. You know, indiv individuality is completely squashed and you have no agency. Right, like, everybody's very comfortable. The critics' problem was that, all right, you've, you've shown us a world where the corporations have solved all the problems yet you didn't make this movie like a satire showing, well, how they didn't actually solve the problems. Right. Now, as far as we know, I mean, and it could be that we're just not seeing it, but as far as what we know from the screen, they really have eliminated starvation and poverty. But for me, it's like, well, I don't know. The whole not having any individuality and, I don't know, having corporations decide my every life choice... That seems like a pretty big problem that I don't feel like you needed to make this movie into a satire. I think right now the whole idea is like mega corporations are kind of like a cliche in like dystopian sci-fi. Mm -hmm. But I think it looks very much like you would imagine of its time where all of like the executives are like suit wearing guys. But honestly, there's a lot of people right now who as much as they talk about like, you know, hating big companies and stuff. A lot of people every day spend most of their time simping for big companies and looking for comfort, and 
it's not hard to imagine a world where people would give up most of their decision making as long as they just had comfort. Yeah, as long as they had pills and comfortable beds and rollerball, uh, and rollerball baby. to watch on TV. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to get super political here or anything, you know. But it's, uh, it's not hard to imagine that. And there's actually a good scene in the movie where he meets with his wife, who's now married yeah. to another guy. The corporation sent her back to him. Well, they were definitely trying to send yet another person to convince him to retire to retire which he's not interested in doing but uh he was like you know at some point you know i think a lot of people uh decided that they would trade like freedom for comfort and she says uh, but comfort is freedom and i i thought that was a pretty good line yeah so there there's definitely aspects of the dystopian bit that i think are are really good and for for me are, are satisfying now admittedly the future of 2018 you can tell it's the future because of sci-fi paperback novel font yeah everything is written in this font that if you've ever seen like an old paperback novel of a uh, sci-fi story it's like ah yes i've seen that font before <laughs> um and then other than that, it's just the 70s, but like a really clean 70s. Like a really 70s. clean, high, upper-class 70s. It's very colorful. Well, I, I kind of dig it. <laughs> you know, it's always funny. I like how 70s sci-fi always, like, imagines what, like, the future styles or, like, society will be like. Whereas, like, modern sci-fi tends to be just mostly focused on the technology. But it's always funny to see what set people in the 70s thought would be futuristic. Because you have a lot of computers that, you know, their display is black with some green type. <laughs> like that, that you know, and you have like even at one point where they go to like a library of like knowledge. Uh, they do have a talking liquid computer, but most of it's just these huge giant computer banks like you're used to seeing like, you know, and like old movies. The problem is for me is I, I think my perception of the future has been warped by these movies because now like I see... A movie that's got like holographic screens and I'm like, hmm, lame, boring. That's not the future. Where's the robot? Where where's the giant computer that's still using tape to function? <laughs> right. That's futuristic. That speaks in like a robotic voice. But and uh, you know, if you give it a logical error, it'll explode. I do want to sort of touch on the water computer. Part of uh what's going on outside of the rollerball scenes is Jonathan is trying to sort of unravel what is actually going on behind the scenes with executives. There's not a lot of clarification of what's going on. There's something called the corporate wars that nobody knows about. And Yeah, it's like referenced two or three times, and he tries to find out something about it from the computer but can't get any information. And, like, they don't have books because everything has been, like, uploaded to computers. But, like, all, all the books that have been uploaded have been like abridged and also jonathan with everybody he asked everyone's just like yeah the the corporations take care of us man why are you concerned so yeah they say they say you don't play no more so don't play no more you know so like the only person who is sort of on jonathan's side is his like trainer named cletus and jonathan goes to geneva to consult with this super the supercomputer named zero. zero and zero is i actually think it's a pretty cool looking 
computer. Like it's it's more or less just like a cube that's full of like water fountain tubes. Yeah, and I I think there's like a bit of a metaphor there. The idea is that like knowledge is liquid and it all flows from zero. He's like where all the information is correlated. Though he did lose the entire 13th century. Yes, he's the, the the librarian who's sort of weird and eccentric talks about how zero is is becoming weird. He's 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 not as sharp as he used to be, I guess. And of course, Jonathan gets zero information from zero, but right, and it's kind of even a bizarre scene where zero's not responding, and the librarian keeps talking to zero like right up in its face, and like is constantly like kicking. It's like you have to tell him. <laughs> but as far as like a futuristic computer, I can't really think of many depictions of computers that involve water. Actually, no, and it, like I said, it's. It's strange and fanciful, but it's kind of interesting, it's, and I like it. It, But the scene was very strange. And, I mean, it, I feel like you could probably remove it and it not really change much, but... You'd miss up, though, on the awesome uh, performance, though, by the librarian. Yeah, and it it's just sort of a... I don't know, it, it builds the world a bit, I think. And I think that maybe critics have been kinder, and I think it would have been to the movie's strength if we just you know, seen a little more of the world and maybe seen a little bit more of, like, how people are actually restricted. Because, like, Jonathan knows he's being controlled, but I only feel like we get to see it in a couple ways. Yeah. Honestly, though, I I, I enjoyed the whole thing. Yeah. I thought it was... Uh, I, I was kind of surprised to see that critics had been so harsh to this movie because I looked at this and I'm just like, this should just be a classic movie. Yeah, it, it was kind of weird that it wasn't held in higher esteem. I mean... It was mixed reviews. Like, I did see positive reviews from the time. Right. Um, well, and the audience turned out for this one. Yeah. Because I think... It was like 5 to $6 million the budget, and then I think it made like $30 million. Yeah, and you got to remember, that's not just $30 million, That's $30 million in the 70s. Yes. That's, that ha- We have not adjusted that for inflation. So <laughs> it's it, like that's $2 size- billion now. I, I don't know what it is now, but it, it's obviously a sizable sum. And I think... I think most science fiction fans and movie fans, I think most people look at this favorably. Yeah, I'm sure this movie has been reevaluated since by critics. It's probably, if if you, you know, open up a book of uh, a thousand movies you must see before you die, I, I would bet Rollerball's probably in there somewhere. And if it's not, it should be. I mean, I, I enjoyed this more than I enjoyed Planet of the Apes. <laughs> I like Planet of the Apes. I like Planet of the Apes is, uh, too, but I think of like 70s sci-fi, this is really up there for me. I think the problem was is that, well, one, so critics are always rough to sci-fi, especially at the time, but just in general. I know that in the 70s, like before Star Wars came out, like everyone didn't believe in Star Wars because no one believed in sci-fi at the time. Right, well, and I think part of it was... I think Rollerball is a good film, but I think it was too many dark dystopian films because, I mean, you had like this and Soylent Green. Yeah, which is, I'm sure we'll talk about that later at some point, but that that's another movie that's not exactly a happy end. No, and it's actually got some interesting kind of parallels with this movie, but uh, yeah, I just, I don't, th- I think like horror science fiction is very easy to get a thing, but I think on the other end too, I think people didn't like that. They think that this movie kind of took itself too seriously. 
And it does. This movie does not play around or wink at the camera. But I, 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 I feel like, like that would be to its detriment if it was like if it took a wink at the camera. Well, and I think it's kind of refreshing in some ways that it doesn't because there are a lot of movies I enjoy specifically, like for instance, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. The way it doesn't take itself seriously at all is part of the fun. But it feels like movies, even today, like made today, even if they're like dramatic in any way, they always got to wink at the camera and give me like, you know, well, that happened type of like, you know, humor. And uh, I'm glad that that's not in here because I don't need it. I, I don't. I don't remember if Clockwork Orange came out before or after this movie. Uh, I believe it was before. And Cl- Clockwork Orange is a very serious movie, but it's also. Uh, satirical in a lot of ways it's it's not quite uh haha jokey joke but it there is like a humor to it and and i think one of the things is i read is that this movie was compared unfavorably to like clockwork orange yeah like oh it should have been more like this but i would rather watch this than clockwork orange any day so (laughs) take that yeah clockwork orange is a a a little little heavy (laughs) for uh Again, this movie has a, a happy, uh, or like what I would call a happy ending. I, I, and I would it's, say it's a it's a winning ending. A winning ending. There like, you go. Uh, he, he's victorious, but it, it's not like a happy-go-lucky ending. It, it just, it, it's not a heavy movie to watch. And I, I think, because with that sport aspect, I mean, you are like every game rooting for Houston. Which is something they did right, because... A lot of times when I'm watching a movie, it's hard not to think about, like, what is going to lead to what? What is the director obviously going in, like, this direction? But when I was watching Rollerball, I was just watching Rollerball, and I was, like, rooting for Houston. And I was like, you're legitimately behind them and want to see them come out okay. It is. I mean, like I've said, it's two types of movies shoved into one. So there's one movie you're watching where you're sort of hoping that Jonathan figures out what's going on and gets, uh, you know gets whatever he's looking for and then there's the other movie where it's like go houston kill them all win the sport you're which, gonna be champs boys which maybe is not what the director is going for exactly but you know years of blood sports uh have you know yeah yeah i i will say this though uh so obviously i think he was thinking a lot about football when he was filming this movie and you know I think there's some valid points there. Like, I'm not saying we should van football. I enjoy watching it myself or anything. But, like, you know, we kind of have a more of an acknowledgement these days of the wear it takes, like, on athletes. But it made me think of more like MMA, where you're watching people who can't really sometimes, in some cases, make it other places, just beating the brain cells out of each other for entertainment. You yeah, know? I, I I feel like if he wanted to make a, a statement, because I'm not sure... Like, I know now the concussion thing with football is big, but in the 70s, you know, I'm not sure if it was wide. I, I don't think it was wide knowledge how no. much damage people were taking, but it was something that was clearly happening, but we didn't know anything about really concussions right then, I don't think. But, like, if you wanted to make a, a statement about maybe roller balls played by the more poverty stricken, because, I mean, with MMA, a lot of combat sports, it's like, I'm I'm from this poor third world country and my only way to make it big is through fighting and combat sports. So, well, that's what I mean. Like Muay Thai is so big. Yeah. Uh, is, and... For a lot of people like who commit to it, it's like it's this or it's nothing. Mm-hmm. I have to be good at this. And, you know, it's hard because like 
I think people have the need for sports, and I think there needs to be some roughness for sports. I think men need that. It's like a controlled outlet. There's room for physical sport. Right. Um, But the movie, you know, does bring up some, like, fair questions, I think, about, you know, where do we draw the line? Now, I'm sure he would draw the line way, (laughs) way lower than I would. I I would draw the line at maybe, you know... Drop-kicking motorcycles. Running people yeah. over with motorcycles to get that three-minute, uh, you know, penalty. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe we've gone a little too far there. But, uh, like, hockey. For I'm pretty fine with hockey. And I'm, I'm going to just leave it at that, as that, just that it brings up good points. I'm not going to try to argue for one thing or the other. This is uh, beyond me and beyond the scope of the podcast, but I thought it was worth bringing up. Because yeah, it's no. obviously part of the movie. If it's okay with you, though, I would like to transition to talking about cast and crew here. Sure, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've been talking about Rollerball for a while, but... Uh, Who is in Rollerball? Well, so our friend Jonathan E. is played by James Kahn. He was a pretty big actor at the time, and, well, I mean, he's still active, I believe. No, he he, he, passed, he passed away passed last away? year, I believe. Really? Yeah, I believe July of 2022. Well, Rollerball was a notable film for him, but also notable was Thief, who was, uh, that was directed by Michael Mann. See our episode on Manhunter. I guess probably one of his most known roles would be he played Sonny in The Godfather. Yep. And one thing that most people have seen him in that I completely spaced is he is in the movie Elf. Yes. As uh, Buddy the Elf's father. Yeah, he's also in Misery and uh, probably bigger than Elf. He was in a single episode of Annoying Orange. Ah, man, don't do that to you. I, I, I feel like that's like the equivalent. Well, it's much worse than like when you're like a, a rock band and you start playing like the casino circuit in your like old age, but worse. <laughs> At the very least, it's not his last role he did. He or, he did not go out on, on Annoying <laughs> Orange, which that that would have been tragic. And uh, I think James is very good in this one. I think he said that, you know, he wasn't sure how much he could do with the character. But I think he does a great job at conveying what he's meant to convey and really making Jonathan likable, everyman type character. And I didn't he say this movie for him was like a 9 out of 10? 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10. His performance, he said. Was oh, his performance. But, uh... Well, the movie is definitely up there. Now, very important to this film, but not near as important to the world of Hollywood, unfortunately, was John Beck. Yeah. He plays Moon Pie, who's a great part of the the movie, as we mentioned, uh, easily a standout character. But most of his acting, he was in movies. But a, a lot of what was notable for him was just his TV appearances. And a lot of those were soaps. So it's not stuff that you would... Soaps are, like, really beloved by the people watching them at the time, but they're not something that people watch later, you know? So, yeah, I don't I don't know how many people uh, want to take on the, the task of watching the thousand-plus episodes of Dallas on rerun. Right. But he did play a notable character for a while on Dallas. He did uh, play in many soaps. He was in the Woody Allen film that's also a sci-fi film, Sleeper. And most important to me, I didn't realize this, uh, in the 90s Spider-Man the Animated Series, the really good one, uh, he is the voice of the Punisher. It's always weird when we read about somebody that we have no idea about and realize that we've met him somewhere in some other piece of media. Yeah. John Houseman, who plays Bartholomew, the 
executive who's really uh, pushing or he, he's really leading the charge against Jonathan. He's acted in, in quite a bit and some of it seems pretty high caliber. I haven't really seen a lot of this stuff like he's in the paper chase and he's in three days of the condor which i know has robert redford in it i know him best from the movie the fog if you've seen the fog it opens up with a salty sea captain sort of telling a ghost story and he is the salty sea captain telling a, the ghost story yeah imagine being in all like these highbrow films and it's like oh yeah it's the guy from the fog but but don't get me wrong, uh, that's where I know him from too. And I mean, honestly... And the fog is really good. And, and that scene in the fog, well, it really ties the film together. It... Right, it's, it's tone setting. Also interesting is the character of Cletus was played by actor Moses Gunn. And he has been in a wide swath of movies uh, of varying tones. My favorite that he's in being Shaft and the sequel... <laughs> Shaft 2, but he also shows up in Firestarter, Amityville 2, and the much more prestigious Heartbreak Ridge. Oh, but don't forget. I should say prestigious. I know how to say it right. Okay, well, I'm not stupid. I, I wasn't going to critique that. I well, was... I just, there's, there's a viewer right now who thinks I'm stupid because I, I misset a word, and I have to set it straight that I'm smart. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of stuff that he was in. Um, I'd like to point out that he was in The Ninth Configuration, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Definitely going to come up at some point. And uh, uh, a movie that's not my favorite, Leonard Part 6, which is... I've never even heard of this. It is, well, it's Bill Cosby, and it is big-time cult material. It's uh, it's bad. <laughs> so if, if you tick me off, that'll be my pick one week. Oh, it would be a joy, I bet. I bet it's a joy to talk about. <laughs> Uh, another person in the movie is uh, Maude Adams. She plays Ella, which is uh, it's, the wife. Uh, his wife, yeah. And what's unique about her is that she's been a Bond girl in two separate movies. I saw that, and I it was really weird to me. Like, I know in Godzilla movies, a lot of time they have the actors, like, keep showing up. But... I, I would have never guessed that that would have happened in a Bond film. Right. She plays the Bond girl in both Octopussy and The Man with the Golden Gun, and I believe she makes a cameo in another one. It might have been View to a Kill, but I'm not sure on that. And also, big cult material, Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. Yes. Initiation. <laughs> maybe, maybe one December we should just watch Silent Night, Deadly Night. Just watch all four. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> watch them steadily degrade yeah well i don't think it really starts off too high to begin with that doesn't matter what i've learned in movies and in life is that there is no rock bottom that's a myth you can always go lower it can always get worse um there is one well there's one character named robert ito um he's in the movie for like all of two minutes He's not really important, but he is in Buckaroo Banzai, Across the Eighth Dimension. Another one of Bones' favorite movies. So, I, I shout out to him. And I also want to talk about Ralph Richardson, who is the librarian. And uh, even though he's not in the movie for very long, he definitely makes an impression. And he was in Dr. Zhivago. He was... I want to say he has a Shakespearean acting background, uh... 
he's like a he had a huge career like just on the stage. Yes. Um he was also in Time Bandits. Uh Dragon Slayer. Oh, I love Dragon Slayer. He is in Watership Down as the chief rabbit. Like he has got a very big career and some of it is kind of cult, some of it is not. I can get a chance to do a deep dive on him like I would have liked to. Uh, and it probably wasn't appropriate considering that, you know, he's only in a small portion of Rollerball for this thing. But he seems like he's quite the character. Yeah. Oh, and also he is the Crypt Keeper in the Tales from the Crypt movie from the 70s. How did I miss that? Before the HBO show. So, again, not in this movie very long, but he's definitely got some cult film under his belt. And yeah, and his eccentric, goofy kind of librarian character is uh, was definitely enjoyable. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you guys have noticed that when we talk about cast and crew, we try to talk about some of the important stuff they've done. But I, whenever I'm, I'm going through what they've done, I'm always just looking for more cult stuff, and that, that's what's most notable to me. No, I'm, I'm gonna be straight up with uh, you guys. When I'm doing my research. I look for if there's any movies that were like major to their career. I mentioned that one. And then the rest are just movies that I think either I would be interested in or you guys would be interested in. So, you know, I'm not always looking for all of their finest acting credits, but more of like what other goofy film that we could review were they in? The guy who wrote the screenplay, William Harrison, as we mentioned, he wrote the story for Rollerball prior. Um, and actually, he wrote a handful of short stories, and I think he might have written a couple books. Uh, most of his short stories ended up in Esquire. He does have a another movie that he wrote, Mountains of the Moon. I, I don't know anything about it, but I figured it's worth uh, mentioning. And he also acted in a single episode of The Blue and the Gray, which is a show I, I enjoyed, but uh, I don't. <laughs> I know some people are having flashbacks to watching it in class, like on in high school or something. Yeah. So and and he was uncredited in his role in the blue and the gray. So th- there you go for him. And I guess uh, we should talk about the director real quick. Yeah, I guess he's kind of important. He has some heavy hitters, but looking at his filmography, it was not. He's not one of those directors who has 500 plus credits and uh, is is just constantly working. I think the movie that really launched his career that's well regarded was In the Heat of the Night, which is like a very serious drama. That that's definitely in uh you know, a thousand and one movies you must see before you die. It's pretty famous. Some notable stuff he did was he he directed Film versions of Jesus Christ Superstar. And in fact, fi- that was, I'm sorry to interject. That was, I, that struck me because not only have, you know, have a lot of people seen that, but that was like the year before this movie he had just done yes. Jesus Christ Superstar. He also did Fiddler on the Roof and Moonstruck with Cher and Nicolas Cage. For some reason, Moonstruck keeps coming up on this show. And no, we aren't going to talk about Moonstruck. <laughs> right. No, it doesn't matter how many times it comes up. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. We refuse. Refuse. But uh, he did direct it, and uh, Nicolas Cage is in it. <laughs> well, if Nicky Cage is in it. But, uh, yeah, other than that, I, I mean, that there's other stuff that he did that was notable. But for us, I think those are 
probably the movies that you might know that he has done. There is one final person in this movie I would like to talk about. Very uh, MVP of this film. <laughs> actually, I think Bones would be happy if I let him talk about this one since he was very excited that we include it. Would you like to take the... Yeah, movie? yeah, sure. So in the the cast of stuntmen is Mark Rocco, who was a professional wrestler, fourth generation, and after this movie, he went by the name Rollerball. Yes, he was Mark Rollerball Rocco. In New Japan, he was the original Black Tiger, and uh, it looked like he had a, a pretty full career, probably not a name that most... Well, his biggest sin is there were a lot of big names in the 70s, but people didn't start paying attention to, like, nobody knows anything that happened before the 80s in wrestling. Yeah. Whatever the case is, I, I think Japanese people would know him because I'm pretty sure the Black uh, Tiger was one of those, like, he was a masked wrestler, obviously, when he was that, but that's one of, like, those legacy wrestlers that they have where it's, like... The, the mask keeps getting passed down. Right, so... It's funny, but he might actually be more well known to if we had, if we have any Japanese viewers, you know, I'm sure they all come to listen to uh, our uh, channel about cult movies. If here, if you're but, somebody uh, who's really in, deep into wrestling history, uh, Mark Rollerball uh, Rocco might be on your your list of uh, people. And going back to the film, since we talked about the stunt, well, a stunt man. Let's talk just a little bit about the stunts because I was pretty impressed by this this movie, especially at the end where they, they really pull out all the stops. Around the ring, there is – I don't think it's supposed to be a catch fence. I think it's just supposed to be like a fence barrier between the audience and everyone else. And they send a dude flying off of his motorcycle through this fence. And I mean – it looks really good. There's people getting sort of tapped by motorcycles. There's, I mean, everyone's on roller skates and on an inclined surface. So regardless of even people hitting each other, I'm impressed. No, everything looks real. Everything looks brutal. And I read somewhere, I believe it was from Nostalgia Central was one of the places where I got information from this movie. Uh, also, full disclosure, uh, TCM is always a good place to get information about like all of the actors. But uh, that they sometimes would forget that they were filming and would, they were just sucked into trying to play the game during certain <laughs> scenes where they were just playing rollerball. So I don't know what they were paid for this film, but hopefully they took good care of James Caan and uh, John Beck because they had to do a lot of their own playing in this. They didn't do all of their stunts, but they had to do a lot of it. So not only did they have to act, but they also had to strap on roller skates and, you know, get in there. Yeah, and th this movie definitely required a person to be able to do more than roller skate. Yeah, uh, you got to keep, you got to like, Mind, be mindful of where you are for the scene and what's supposed to be happening while also not careening into somebody you're getting ran over by a motorcycle. Unless that's your job. Because sometimes people get ran over by motorcycles and rollerball. Or are falling off of motorcycles. And for me, it's like that inclined surface, especially when you've got somebody crashing a motorcycle up there and they're sliding around or 
one guy is doing a, a stunt where he's set on fire. Right. No, at least two motorcycles explode during this movie. You've got somebody has like been horribly mutilated on the ring and they have to send out the dudes with the stretcher. And then they drive the motorcycle right through, through the it. Stretcher. Yeah. There's a reason that this movie uh, gave the stuntmen credits in the film. Well, and this whole thing was filmed in uh or at least all of the yes, all of the scenes that are rollerball scenes are filmed in Munich, and uh, I believe it's called Rudy Selmeyer uh, Hall. Uh, I believe it's also known as the Audi Dome. Um, I'm going to be straight with you guys. I'm not German, and uh, if I uh, butchered that, sorry. <laughs> but uh, I believe it was built uh, for basketball for the 1972 Olympics, if I'm not mistaken. But since it was sort of a mostly round sort of stadium. Yeah, it's like one of the five largest, like, round stadiums, so it was perfect. They hired a German architect to build everything else, you know, necessary to be rollerball. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Despite this being an American film with a few Canadians, uh, I I think everything was pretty much filmed in Germany. And no, I believe that's correct, and I know that a lot of the scenes that weren't rollerball scenes were filmed, like, in a big, like, brand new BMW building, mm-hmm. is where a lot of the scenes of, like, the interiors of, like, these fancy places they're visiting are. Because, I mean, it's a very, they're obviously, like, on the upper end of society, and everything's, like, very, you know, affluent and futuristic looking. Yeah. Well, do you have any, uh, anything else you'd like to discuss here? Uh, we've been going for a while, I'm not sure how long, uh... But I think I've exhausted all of my knowledge of rollerball. Yeah, I I don't think I have much else to say about this movie other than um, it's a a big time recommend from me. I when I was real young, I saw this movie, did not care for it. Um, but that's probably because I wanted to watch cartoons or something, and Dad was bogarting the TV, so didn't enjoy it. Uh, as a grown adult, I really love rollerball. Um, yeah, it's two hours, like two hours and nine minutes, something like that. But I mean, I I didn't care. I wasn't feeling the uh, the the heavy weight of watching something that long. No, and I you know I always try to give movies my full attention, but you know I'm like you guys. Sometimes I reach for the phone when I shouldn't or something. But I mean, there was no temptation uh, during this film. I was pretty much glued to it. You know, maybe I'm just an impressionable, you know, yokel compared to some of these critics. But, I mean, I did watch it, and it made an impression. Yeah. Um, if you like uh, science fiction, 70s science fiction, you'll probably like this. And if you like a, a good sports film, uh, you'll like this. And and if you like crazy stunts, you'll you'll like this. I guess this does—my my last little thing I'd like to talk about. We talked about how rollerball looks like a real sport— I think that's maybe one aspect I, I loved the most about this movie is that there's so many like modern science fiction movies where they have like a modern sp- – this is what the sport of the future will look like and like real steel where you've got giant robots fighting each other. And I don't believe for a second the human race will ever progress to that. I can totally believe that in the future – we might play something like rollerball. No, rollerball is interesting because it's both like it's both brutal and novel, but it's not too over the top to believe. Like for instance, this movie I is enjoyed, grounded. 
Right. I enjoy the movies that, well, I not maybe not in the way I should, but like the Death Race movies. But that's this, this no is Death Race. This is believable. Yeah, there's, right? there's no way Death Race in the future. But Rollerball? Maybe. So that's my last thing I'd like to say other than I, I recommend is I, I like that this is a grounded movie for the most part. Well, I think and 70s sci-fi font is cool. <laughs> it is. We're going to do everything in it now. <laughs> but uh, no, this is a big recommend from both of us, which means that I get to pick the next movie. That's correct. Uh, the last film of All Recommend November. The last recommendation we will ever take. Yes. Well, no, not really. But for the end of this series, uh, somebody recommended Lake Placid, and I love me some gator action. So I think we're going to do Lake Placid. I'm looking forward to it. If you'd like to continue to listen to us and support us, uh, feel free to hit the like and subscribe button here on YouTube um, and leave us a comment. Uh, we are in a handful of other places like Spotify, Apple Podcast, CastBox, and we we have a, a handful of episodes on Odyssey, but due to the fact that Odyssey is uh, imploding right now, we uh, we might not be continuing to upload to Odyssey, and I might try to figure out how Rumble works. But I, the point is, we're everywhere. Please give us love. <laughs> <laughs> not desperate at all. But uh, and, and if. I've mentioned YouTube, but if you're listening to us on any of these other places, thank you for listening on these alternative media sources. We really appreciate yeah, the Spotify engagement. Yes, Spotify's big alternative media. Well, you know, compared to uh, the viewership we get on YouTube and the viewership on Spotify, it feels alternative. <laughs> well, everybody, thank you for listening. Keep it cool. Yeah, yes, goodbye. <laughs>